Well, it's a great privilege to be with you again. And uh, I'm going to ask you to just stay there at Matthew 11 because that's where we'll be looking. Um, we're going to be talking about what to do about doubt. Um, doubt is a real thing. And uh, I think we can learn a lot from this passage about that. Um, before we jump into more details about it, though, um, I wanted to ask you, when you think about people in the Bible, who are some of the greatest examples that you think of? So I don't know about you. I, obviously, we don't have time for everyone to give their answer and talk through all those, but just some that came to my mind and thinking about this and preparing. Um, one of the great examples that we see throughout the scriptures is Abraham. Um, when you think about Abraham, um, he is someone who believed God would provide him a son through his wife, and the two of them were not able to have children, and yet he believed God's promise that they would have a son. He had great faith. Um, and then they get the son, and God sends the word that Abraham has to sacrifice that son. And Abraham prepares to do that and is ultimately stopped by God from doing it. But what an incredible display of faith Abraham had, right? Incredible faith. And yet, there were times where Abraham and Sarah doubted that God would provide that child that he promised, right? It, it tells us in Hebrews 11 that they had great faith, but we know through the account in Genesis there were times where they doubted, right? In fact, Sarah laughed about it, and she was called on it and tried to <laughs> cover it up, right? But they had doubt, and, and yet they were examples of great faith spoken of in Hebrews 11. Um, there's many other examples that we could think about, but someone we probably wouldn't necessarily think about as one of the greatest examples, Jesus points out to us in this passage, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a great example. And we're going to talk a lot more about this as we go on, but... John has an extremely significant role in prophecy in preparing for Jesus' coming. John is a great man, and yet we see in this passage that John, who very boldly proclaimed to the Pharisees that they needed to bring forth fruit for repentance, they were vipers, um, that same John who's calling Jesus the Lamb of God, the Son of God, that same John is now sending messengers to Jesus to ask if he's really the Messiah. Now, we could look really critically at John, like how in the world could John be acting this way? But I think it should instead cause great humility in us to recognize that even 
many of the great leaders of the faith that we see in the scripture struggled at times with basic things like understanding who Jesus was. So instead of coming to the scriptures with some judgmentalness and arrogance, I think it's good for us to come with humility, recognizing, as Paul talks about Old Testament people, that these things were written as examples for our instruction, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These, were, these things happened to them as an example, and they are written for our instruction, Paul says. So we can learn from this doubt that John experienced. Um, and we can learn from that for our own benefit and instruction and help in times of our own trouble. Um, before we jump in, though, let's, let's take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to guide us in our study. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given this account that we may understand what John went through and how you helped him and how we can be helped as well. We pray that you give us understanding and encouragement from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at verse 1, just to understand some context, um, um, we're going to see here, uh, we're going to actually focus today on verses 1 through 6. And I, and I want you to see, first of all, that doubts will come. Doubts will come in the life of the believer, as we see evidence here in the life of John. But as we look at the beginning of the story here, we see in verse 1 that it says, Jesus had finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples. He departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. So what had, what had happened, if you were to look back at chapter 10, verse 1, he is sending out his 12 disciples to go and to, to preach, to have authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal diseases, and he's sending them out. He uh, had given them instruction, verse 10, or, I'm sorry, chapter 10, uh, about persecution that's going to come, what it means to be true disciples, and he talks at the end of chapter 10 about rewards uh, for those that follow him. But in verse 1 of chapter 11, we see the conclusion of that where he is sending them out, and then Jesus is going on to preach in their cities. He was in the area of the Sea of Galilee where he had called these disciples to himself. And he continues to preach there as he had been doing. And so we're told that this is the situation when John, uh, who has been imprisoned, uh, sends his own disciples to ask Jesus if he is indeed the one who is coming or if they should look for somebody else. So it's clearly an expression of doubt that Jesus truly was the coming Messiah. John was one who had proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, and yet he is now reflecting or uh, demonstrating doubt about that very thing. And I think this is instructive to us that, one, doubts will come, and we also can see that doubts may come, in times of overwhelming circumstances. Where was John when this happened? John's in prison. John's in prison. John didn't do anything wrong. 
John had been boldly preaching. If you were to go back to Matthew chapter 3, you see John preaching there, and there are many coming for baptism, um, repenting of their sins and trusting in the Lord and following in uh, baptism. And even the Lord himself is there baptized in chapter 3 by John. John somewhat protests, saying, hey, I have need to be baptized of you, but Jesus insists that it needs to be done for all righteousness, so they, they do so. But John has been faithfully preaching and teaching, and John hasn't done anything wrong. So why is he imprisoned? Well, we're told, if we were to jump ahead to Matthew chapter 14, we're told there some of the circumstances of his imprisonment. Herod, who was a ruler in that area, had married his brother's wife, which was against the law. And John was pointing that out. You have married your brother's wife. You're not supposed to do that. John kept reminding him of that wrong that he had done. And therefore, eventually, Herod had enough. And so Herod put him in prison. But yet, the Bible tells us in Matthew 14 that Herod was afraid of the people because the people recognized John was a prophet. So they would have been outraged if Herod had done anything to John, um, like put him to death. So Herod was afraid to put him to death. And so here John is in prison, languishing. So when we put ourselves in John's shoes, you can imagine there's some discouragement about his situation, right? He is the one that is the messenger before the Lord's coming. And yet he's in prison. What's going on? What? So doubts may come when we experience difficult circumstances. I think that's a contributing factor of what's going on with John. But I think another factor that's probably even more significant is that doubts may come when we're confused about God's actions. Or I think a big part of what John is struggling with here is not just what Christ is doing. John's confused about what Christ is not doing. John's in prison. Why isn't he out? Why isn't Christ the ruler and taking over and putting down the evil rulers? John has heard that Christ is teaching and preaching, right? So if you were to look at earlier passages in Matthew, you go back to 8, um, you can see that Jesus is healing people. John's likely heard about that. If you look at the parallel passage, which you find in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Luke 7, you see in Luke 7 that Jesus healed, or I'm sorry, raised someone from the dead. And it talks about how word spread about that resurrection. And then right after that passage in Luke is where it talks about this same thing, where John is doubting and questioning Christ. So John has likely heard about that. He's probably heard about Jesus casting out demons as we see in Matthew chapter 8. Maybe John's heard about some of the conflicts with the religious leaders, though at least in the book of Matthew, that seems to come later in, in the uh, accounting there. Um, but 
If John's hearing of these things, the raising of the dead, the the miraculous healings, the casting out of demons, why, why would John be questioning that he's truly the Messiah when he himself had announced that he was? And I think the biggest reason is that John is not seeing what he expects the Messiah to be doing. Jesus' actions aren't being carried out in a way that John expected the Messiah to do. So we do see an initial conflict with John's disciples and Jesus. If you were to look at um, Matthew 9, in fact, uh, verses 14 to 17, looking at 14, it's maybe just a page or two over in your Bible. It says the disciples of John came to him, came to Jesus, asking Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. It's interesting Jesus makes reference to him being the groom. And in fact, this is something that John also says about Jesus in John chapter 3. John calls Jesus the groom when there's a question that comes up and uh, Jesus is starting to get more attention and more followers than John. And John is questioned about that. And he says, hey, I'm watching the groom. I'm an attendant at the wedding, so to speak. And I'm rejoicing that the groom is here. So it's an analogy that John himself has used of Jesus. But there was an initial conflict here, but I think we see in chapter 11 is where the conflict comes to a head. John seems to be questioning the very thing that he had said, which was Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one who would come. Now, why would he be doing that? And I think uh, we're going we're gonna to dive into it a little deeper when we talk about how Jesus answers the question. But just to give you a little bit of a summary here to think about it, I think the simple answer is John, like many of the Jews, was confused about what the Messiah would do in the first coming versus the second coming. Many of the Old Testament passages talk about things the Messiah would do, and within those same passages, very closely connected are statements that apply to the first coming and things that apply to the second coming and it may have been hard for them understandably to recognize the difference we'll we'll talk more about that but also when you understand if you if look with me at john one i want to highlight something that may not be obvious to us if we look at john one we see in john one Another passage where John is interacting with Jesus and he says some things about Jesus that are significant and I think relate here to help us understand. In John 1, looking at verses 32 uh, to 34, this is um, related to the baptism. Um, What we see here is John testified saying, He's saying this about Jesus. I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. 
That's upon Jesus. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. Again, same John who's later questioning. But I think that what might be helpful to understand is this anointing. The anointing is a significant thing that we see with the kings in Israel. Do you remember Samuel anointed Saul to be king? And while Samuel used oil to do it, for his part, what you clearly read in the passage is that the Holy Spirit came upon Saul in a special way. Now that was not a temporary dwelling of the Spirit. It was an anointing of the Spirit enabling Saul to be the king of Israel. And that's what's happening when David is anointed by Samuel. That same anointing leaves Saul. It doesn't have to do with his salvation. It has to do with being anointed to be the king. So when you understand that's what's happening in the Old Testament with these kings... When John sees this anointing of Christ, it's natural for him to think, with his knowledge of the scriptures, that this is the same anointing and Jesus is the king. And if he's the king, why is wicked Herod in charge? Why isn't the king taking over? We could see it makes some sense why John might struggle. We also see when we look at John's ministry, he is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, right? And his job as the voice in the wilderness, according to Isaiah 40, is to announce the coming of the Messiah, to say, make his path straight, right? And I think in our modern understanding, that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to us what does that mean that announcement was the proclamation that the king is coming therefore get everything out of his way make sure nothing makes him stumble take care of everything move right like a modern equivalent we might think of is what happens when the president comes to town When the president is going to come to town, what happens in our country is the Secret Service shows up ahead of time, right? They do all kinds of research. They make sure the area is clean. They set up barricades. They get police escorts. They have a special secure vehicle. And then they drive the president from one location to another with all these people and everything blocked off, right? That's the idea. That's the same concept here with John saying, make his path straight. It's the same idea. It's the announcement of the king coming. Get ready for the king. So when we understand that's the role that John had, it makes sense why he's confused. I'm not saying it was right or it's okay but it helps us maybe understand a little bit why he didn't get it. He didn't clearly understand the difference between the first and second coming. And he didn't really understand that Christ was going to suffer first. And I think to 
focus on our own application for a moment. I think this is very instructive for why we often struggle. We misunderstand what God is doing. We don't see the whole picture. We see one thing maybe happen and we read into it what God's doing and we don't know the whole picture. We don't have the whole timeline. And so we jump to conclusions about what God is or isn't doing with our little bit of information. And then we get upset with him or we question him because we've rushed to judgment and we have misunderstood what he's doing. I think this is a common problem for us. We need to trust God, recognize we don't have the whole picture, and we need to wait on his timing and learn from this example with John, who was basing much of what he was reacting to based on scripture. And we'll, we'll dive into that more in just a minute, but we have a tendency to also misunderstand what God is doing or what he's not doing and that leading to serious doubts. We need to trust God. We need to believe his word and be careful not to judge too much of what we see in our circumstances and judge God based on that. We need to trust his word. You've probably heard the example like the, the tapestry, right? You've heard that illustration before, perhaps. Um, the idea being the way God works is like a tapestry where it's, um, if you're looking at the top of it, you can see the beautiful tapestry and how it's created. But if you look from the underneath, right, it just looks like a bunch of threads tied together and you don't see the picture. Well, that's many times how it is in our lives. And, and as another example in my family, my mom was a big cross-stitcher. I don't know if any of you have done that or have had a family member who did. My mom made gifts all the time for people doing cross-stitch stuff. And I remember many different times where my mom would be all excited about a project she was working on, and she would, she would talk about what it's going to be. And then she would show me where she was at on the project. And if you've ever done cross-stitch, I think the way that she often would work is she'd kind of start at the bottom of the picture and start working from the bottom up. And sometimes she would have just like, you know, 10 or 20 rows of the bottom of it done. And I look at it and I think, what even is that? Can't, can't even make sense of what that is, right? But she knew the grand plan. She, she knew what it was going to be. And she knew all of what it was going to take to finish the product. Well, me and my ignorance looking at her project, I couldn't see those things, right? I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't see the end product. That's often how it is with how God works in our lives. We don't see the whole thing. We don't know everything that's going on. We need to be careful not to rush to judgment because we don't have it all figured out and therefore question God. We need to trust him. Doubts will come when we misunderstand his works or his activities. We need to be careful. But doubts, as we see here, may also come to the strongest among us. Looking at John's ministry, if you look back at chapter 3, he's boldly confronting the Pharisees. He boldly speaks of future judgment. I, I don't know if um, you're familiar, but in Matthew 3, 11, John says, one who's coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit 
and with fire. Have you wondered what that fire is? I realize there may be some theological debate, but my understanding is baptized with fire. You either get one of the two baptisms. Either you're baptized with the Spirit, and in other words, you're becoming part of the body of Christ, or you're punished with fire. You're going to be put in the fire, the fires of hell. So here's John boldly proclaiming future judgment through the Messiah. He proclaimed Christ as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He, is, he called him, as we saw in John 1, the Son of God. Clearly, we look at John and say he's a great follower of Christ. And yet, he's the one now doubting. And even in Christ's assessment of him, we see that Jesus says he's a strong man. Look at verse 7. Um, this is another thing that maybe doesn't make a ton of sense on first read, but thinking about it. Jesus says, as these men were going away, John's disciples, began, he began to speak to the crowds about John, and he said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What's his point? John's not a wimpy guy that just was blown whatever direction the political climates are going. That's not what John was like. John was a strong man. And verse 8, he says, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No. Those who wear soft clothing are in the king's palaces, right? The yes men in the king's palace, they have no will of their own. They just do the king's bidding, whatever he says. Those aren't strong men. John was a strong man. That's the point Jesus is making. He's a strong man, and yet he's doubting. And, and Jesus speaks of John's greatness, and um, I've already gone long, and uh, it's somewhat complicated. I would just say this comment about being the greatest, I, I really understand it to be referring to the ministry that John had. John was the one directly before and announcing Christ's coming. So in that sense, John had the greatest prophetic role of any prophet. I believe that's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus is saying some really commendable things about John, and yet this is the guy who's doubting. This great ministry he had, he's now doubting. He even did it correctly. <laughs> it's somewhat ironic, isn't it? But it's a common experience. In fact, when we look at the Old Testament, we see other examples. We already talked about Abraham and Sarah. They believed God eventually that he would provide Isaac, but yet we see multiple times where they doubted and they connived together to come up with their own plan on how to get a child, which caused the world a ton of problems even to this very day. But Elijah also Elijah is another one of those guys. You look at the Old Testament, you say, this is a rugged man. He was the one that stood up to the prophets of Baal and, and said, well, let's have a contest and we're going we're gonna to do a sacrifice. And he pours water all over the sacrifice. And yet God sends fire and it lights that sacrifice and consumes it. And the people of Israel are amazed and they, and they say, the God of Israel is the true God. He is the true God. And they recognize, at least a group of them at that time, that Baal was not God. And they 
uh, dealt with the prophets of Baal involved in that process. But then wicked Jezebel uh, gets involved and threatens to kill Elijah. And what does he do? He goes running scared and he's ready to quit. These are people who in many ways did great things for God, were greatly used by God, but had serious low times in their lives. It should be ultimately driving us to the point, which I hope has been made very clear, that doubt is common to the human experience. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. I thought this was also encouraging. Um, Many of you may be familiar with Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher in England in the 1800s. Very eloquent speaker, well-taught, very good preacher, large church, a lot of good things that he did. He gave a sermon in 1855 titled The Desire of the Soul in Spiritual Darkness. And this is what he said at that time about doubt. I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not now and then doubt his interest in Jesus. I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. It is quite time for us to begin to say, ah, poor soul, I'm afraid you are not on the road at all. For if you were, you would see so many good things, so many things, I'm sorry, so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ, more than you deserve, that you would be so much ashamed of yourself as even to say, it is too good to be true. Doubts will come. Doubts will come. We must not think that that will never happen to us. At the same time, we must not overreact when it does happen. It will happen. And while they are common, we should not panic, but we should take it seriously. This is not to say ignore it, it's no big deal. We need to deal with doubts. In fact, we're going to move on and see doubts must be confronted. Look at verse 2, verse 2 and 3. It says, Now when John, while imprisoned, heard the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? So we see here John does the right thing with his doubt. He goes to the source. He goes to Christ. He goes to the Son of God. We, when we experience doubt, when we experience discouragement, when we experience trouble, we should go to God. And we should be transparent. How foolish it is to act like there's not a problem when there is. God knows. We should be transparent about it. So in one sense, it seems shocking that John does this, but yet he's a good example in that he takes it to the source and he's transparent about this doubt that he has. And he's seeking, ultimately, a resolution to it. It's exactly what we should do. But John was confused because he was looking for that judgment ruler Messiah about which the scriptures do speak. And he, like many of the Jews, did not understand 
the difference between Christ's first coming and second coming. So let's dive into some other Old Testament scriptures to review this. Look with me at Isaiah 35. We're going to look at this a couple different times. So I encourage you to mark your place there, Isaiah 35. So look, first of all, at verse 4, Isaiah 35, verse 4. It says there, Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. The Lord is coming with vengeance. It says it. It's going to happen. John was aware of this scripture. The recompense of God will come. He will save you. There is a coming of the Lord and there will be vengeance on the wicked. John's looking for that, but he's not seeing it. He's confused. He's doubting, therefore, the whole thing. If you look at Isaiah 61 as well, this passage is actually very important um, for multiple reasons, one of which is because Christ himself quotes this in Luke 4 when he's in the synagogue. He reads some of this passage to the people and says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, this is fulfilled in me. I am the one about which this is spoken. I'm here. But notice, both elements of the first and second coming are included in this passage. Look at verse uh, 1, starting there. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So there's vengeance again in verse 2. This is a messianic prophecy. John knew these passages. John was looking forward to these fulfillments. But when you read Luke 4, and you see what Jesus said when he said, these are fulfilled, do you know what he left out? He stopped right before the day of vengeance part. So Jesus is very careful in how he speaks of what's going to happen and what's being fulfilled at that time. It was only the things included in the first coming. But John didn't understand that. He didn't understand uh, fully God's plan for the suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah 53 that you're, I trust you're very familiar with, which is a prophecy about Christ's suffering on the cross and him paying for our sins. John didn't seem to fully understand that. He didn't seem to understand that the Messiah would later return in judgment. And John didn't fully understand God's plan for John's own life. He didn't understand that God would have him suffer and die, which would actually foreshadow what was going to happen with the Messiah. John didn't know those things. So we see John struggling, but we remember also the disciples did too. Remember? And we could see in Matthew 16 where Peter confesses that, hey, you're the Christ. And then 
Six verses later, when Jesus is talking about his death, Peter argues with him and says, you're not going to do this. Peter's arguing with him. They didn't understand his death. They, they didn't put that together. Doubts are very serious, and they must be dealt with. They are common, but often they're based on misunderstanding. I, when we think about application here, I, I just want to put a word in to parents and grandparents. If we're honest, we're going to recognize we struggle at times with doubts too. The resolution is we need to take that to God, and we're going to talk about how doubts are ultimately cured here with what Christ does um, and our example. But we need to take this seriously when this comes up in our own life and deal with it and take it to God. But we also need to recognize we may deal with children or grandchildren that encounter doubts. I think sometimes it can be easy because we're either busy or we don't fully know how to handle something. We can dismiss it. We need to take that seriously. Children are going to experience doubt as well. And we need to help them. We need to encourage them. Number one, they need to understand this is a common thing. But there are answers. We go to God, and what we'll see next here is that doubts are cured by the scriptures. Let's look back at Matthew 11, 4 and 5, and see how Jesus answers the question. And Jesus is telling John's disciples to evaluate what they're observing according to the scriptures. So when you look at 4 and 5, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. And the blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. All right? Now, on the surface... It may look like Jesus is simply reporting what he's doing and that that's it. But that's not correct. Jesus is doing a whole lot more than that. Jesus is being very purposeful and very careful to point out Old Testament passages that prophesy about the Messiah, saying he will do the very things he's doing. So you see what Jesus is doing. He's pointing John to the scripture. What's the answer for doubt? The scripture. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God's word is the answer to our doubt. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing to. Now, Jesus is also, as I've tried to stress, and I hope it's clear, Jesus is very carefully pointing to the passages about his first coming and not the second. He is not pointing out the judgment passages that come later. He is carefully pointing to the things that are fulfilled. I had you look at Isaiah 35. Hopefully you're able to jump with me back there quickly. We read 35.4 where it talks about the vengeance. Jesus doesn't point to that one. But he does verse 5 and 6. Look at 35, 5 and 6. It says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the air. All right. 5 and the beginning of 6 are clearly things he was doing and would be fulfilled in his first coming. 
And that's what Jesus points to. He points John to the scriptures, indicating that he is indeed fulfilling the prophecies made about the Messiah. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't say, hey, John, don't you remember that the Spirit descended on me and you saw that? Don't you remember that experience you had? He doesn't say, John, remember what you were just preaching not long ago that I I indeed was? Go back to that. No, that's not what Jesus does. He points him to the word of God. The word of God cures the doubts. The word of God cures the doubts. Our circumstances are very difficult to sometimes understand and are not an accurate judge of what is really happening. God does change our circumstances. Things can change. We need to not be controlled by them, but be controlled by the word of God. Now, we need to remember, John experiences doubt. We will experience doubt. They will come, but they should be confronted by going to God. They should be cured by the scriptures, and ultimately, they need to be conquered by persevering faith in Christ. Look at verse 6 and how Jesus finishes the answer. He points John's disciples to the word of God and the fulfillment by his miraculous actions as evidence that he is indeed the promised Messiah. But then he gives this little promissory uh, and or kind of warning at the end, verse 6. He says, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. John was struggling with doubt. Doubt is serious. Doubt, if not corrected, could lead to falling away. That's what offense means here. Offense means you ultimately stumble by rejecting Christ. And Jesus is saying, don't stumble. You will be blessed. You you will have eternal blessing. You will have eternal life if you trust in me and you persist in your trust of me you will be blessed. Don't stumble. Don't let doubt take root, take control, and take over. Continue to believe in me, and you're blessed if you do. This is both a promise and also, in a sense, a warning, because if doubts aren't dealt with, it can ultimately lead to turning away from the Lord. So we need to remember Doubts will come. It may happen to the strongest people. It did happen to the strongest people. It will happen to us. We shouldn't panic, um, but we should take it seriously. We should deal with it. We should go to God, and we should recognize that our cure is found in the scriptures. Asking God to help us understand and be reinforced from the scriptures. And remember Our circumstances are not what's going to solve the problem. We like things to change. We like things to be easy. But God's actions aren't always clear to us. We don't see everything. God can and does change our circumstances, but his word does not change. It stands forever. And we need to rely upon it and look to it for our answers. Now, I I would again reinforce... We're told in Romans 14, 23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So ultimately, doubting is a sin. 
and it needs to be dealt with. But hopefully we've seen it's a common temptation. It's something that will happen, but there are answers. We need to go to God and plead with him for mercy and help, and that we need to look to the scriptures for his answers, his cure to that, and that ultimately we need to persevere in faith in Christ so that we will enjoy that eternal blessing with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that this is a reminder that we're all human beings who are sinners and we're going to struggle at times. And even though you've saved many of us, even, even Christians will at times struggle and, and doubt. But help us, Father, not to be controlled by the fear and the questioning during those times, but help us to be reminded of your word that we would look to you, we would confront the doubts by coming to you, asking for your help, and soaking in the scriptures, that we would study your word, that you would use them to cure the doubts, you would use them to strengthen our faith. Help us, Father, all to come to know Christ and ultimately persevere in faith, that we would know the blessing of eternal life with you. Father, it would, it would be common if there are some here who are struggling. Father, we pray that you'd give grace and help to those who are struggling. And we pray if there are some struggling, they would be transparent about that with you, um, but as appropriate with others that could pray with them, encourage them, and help them. And help us, Father, as we talked about, as parents, as potentially grandparents, or simply as aunts, uncles, and others that have influence in other people's lives. Help us to take doubt in others seriously as well, to pray for and encourage others who may be struggling. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.